0: This Bible study from President and Founder of Capital Ministries, Ralph Drolinger, is entitled, Is God Judging America Today? Some leading evangelicals believe and teach that America is now experiencing God's judgment. As a public servant who was sacrificing so much in your attempt to turn our nation around, it would stand to reason, if those evangelical leaders are correct, that you are wasting your time. Are you laboring against a foregone conclusion? I think not, but let me qualify that position. I do not believe America is experiencing the forsaking wrath of God, but yes, America is experiencing the consequential wrath of God. I will explain what I mean by those terms, theological terms in this study, with which you should have a working familiarity. Introduction. Before examining pertinent passages in answer to the question, Is God judging America today? It is important to first understand God's attribute of judgment and the biblical forms wherein it manifests itself. The question can then be asked as to which forms of judgment apply to America. Understanding God's Judgment Scripture is replete with the proclamation that God is characterized by holiness, righteousness, and perfection. Cross-reference Psalm 93:5, 7:17, and 19:7, respectively, to list his specifically related attributes to the topic of this study. It follows that any violation of those qualities demands adjudication in a way similar to the summons of a human courtroom. The satisfaction of God's violated justice is said to be His judgment or a manifestation of His wrath. Cross-reference Deuteronomy 9:7. Predicated by the fall, God is angry with the wicked every day, states Psalm 7, verse 11b, King James Version. Ephesians 5, verse 6b states, For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. However, God's judgment is balanced, often placated by His attribute of mercy, states Romans 9.15, an Old Testament quote in this regard, I, God, will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Here's the point. In a chronological sense, when God's eternal justice is no longer eclipsed by His eternal mercy, that is to say, His attribute of mercy is expended. His judgment or wrath is necessarily manifest. Since God is just and sin must and will be paid for, Wrath, the righteousness of God revealed against sin, is an inevitable consequence. Keep in mind that the study of God's attributes, the understanding of His forms of judgment, and the application of judgment to a nation or nations are complex theological issues that to have a better understanding of require greater space and text, and I will be required to abbreviate much of what could be said. God's judgment can be summarily categorized into five areas. The five forms of God's judgment. Five forms of God's judgment are repeatedly mentioned in the Bible. They are as follows. Again, the five forms of God's judgment. Number one, eternal wrath, which is hell. Two, eschatological wrath, the day of the Lord. Three, cataclysmic wrath, the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah; 4, forsaking wrath, removing restraint; and 5, consequential wrath, sowing and reaping. In this study, I will examine the last two forms of God's wrath to answer the posed question, is God judging America today? My goal is to carefully evaluate each of these two specific forms of God's wrath in terms of a more thorough biblical understanding. In contrast to the need for an increased biblical understanding of the previous two is cataclysmic wrath. It is not a need of biblical analysis to ascertain whether it is readily apparent in the world today. The five identifiers of number four, forsaking wrath. This fourth wrath is also referred to by theologians as the wrath of abandonment. In Romans 1:18 through 18-32, notice the following five identifying characteristics that surface when God pulls back and allows a person or a group of people to exercise the fallen nature of man. He is no longer restraining as He usually does. A vivid portrayal of forsaking wrath, of God's giving someone over, is furnished in Hosea 4.17. Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. Ephraim was the largest tribe of the ten northern tribes of Israel. You would think that the prophet Hosea, in speaking for God, would have called them to repentance. He did not. Herein God was forsaking, which he does when sinners are determined to pursue what was right in his own eyes, Judges 17.6. Another Old Testament illustration in Psalm eighty one eleven through 12 wherein God speaks through the psalmist. It reads, But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. A third illustration, now from the New Testament in addition to Romans chapter 1, which follows, takes place when God the Father placed the sins of the world on the shoulders of His Son, so as to be a substitute for sinners, and remaining separated from sin, God the Father in essence abandoned His Son on the cross. Jesus replied accordingly, "Why have you forsaken me?" Mark 15:34 and cross-reference 2 Corinthians 5:21. Given those three similar subject illustrations, Romans 1:18 begins with, "For the wrath of God is revealed." This verse depicts the main subject of the passage that follows. Notice more specifically the thrice-repeated phrase through the end of the chapter, God gave them over, verses 24, 26, and 28. The phrase provides the skeletal structure for the outline that follows, serving to identify, evidence, and illustrate when forsaking wrath, the wrath of abandonment, is present. What follows then are biblical descriptors that serve to help us recognize when this kind of wrath is present. A a suppressing in self, verses 18 through 22. This first identifying characteristic that the Apostle Paul lists is not preceded by the phrase, God gave them over, but is nonetheless part of the profile. It reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." The first evidence of the presence of God's forsaking wrath is that people suppress, kateko, meaning to hold back that which they know is the truth. I'm always amazed when people say, I don't believe in God or I don't believe in the Bible. In a personal loving refrain, I am thinking, aren't they lying per this passage? It is not that the unregenerate don't know there is a God in his word. It is they suppress these truths, cross-reference Romans 2.15 there is a big difference. In the Old Testament, David declared, the fool has said, in other words, lied in his heart, there is no God, Psalm fourteen one. The simple reason for this suppression is summarized by Jesus in the New Testament when in John 3.19b, he said, men love the darkness rather than the light. Further down in this section of the Romans 1 passage, suppressors became futile in their speculations, dialogismo, Speculations is perhaps better translated into the English understanding of argumentation or reasoning. The Greek sentence structure here carries the idea of the vanity that results from godless reasoning. Accordingly, professing to be wise, they became fools. Moreno, figuring out the meaning of moreno is not difficult given its English transliteration, moron. In summary, forsaking wrath is evidenced when a person or people— Suppress the truth, which means their subsequent engagement ends in futile dialogue and reasoning. Such communications are moronic or roughly equivalent to an intellectual level of a 7 to 12-year-old. current illustration of Moreno would be members who admit they've never viewed the videos that expose the atrocities of Planned Parenthood, but then exclaim in another interview that all the videos were fabricated. Such is futile logic. Karen illustrated is the suppression of truth within an individual. The next recognizable characteristic of God's forsaking wrath is B, a swapping for environmentalism, verses 23 through 25. Scripture states, "...and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures." Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Man is created in the image of God, whereas the remainder of the created order is not. Genesis one twenty six. Therefore, mankind is separate, special, and superior, as it relates to all god has made it explicitly follows from genesis 1:26 that mankind is not equal or subservient to all that god has created conversely man has preeminence over creation and the environment properly understood god has appointed man to be his steward over the earth clearly indicative of god's forsaking wrath is when the abandoned serve the creature rather than the creator See my previous studies on the religion of environmentalism at capmenorg forward slash Bible studies that detail this aberration. Notice the next indicator, C, a sensation toward homosexuality, verses 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Indicative of forsaking wrath is the proclivity toward lesbianism and homosexuality. D. A Securing of Depravity, verses 28-31. through 31. Scripture states, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, to do things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. In this next portion of the passage, Scripture indicates the direct result, that which is secured, is a depraved mind. When restraint is absent, this is what God gives people over to. Notice what this passage teaches. The things that are not proper stem from and are a result of depraved minds. Adokimos, which means not standing the test. Atokimos was a term referring to metals that did not stand the test due to impurities. Under close examination, these metals lacked internal fortitude or integrity. Since these metals were rejected, atokimos came to mean that which is worthless and useless. It's not as if depraved minds do not know what's right to do. Later in chapter 2 of Romans, the Holy Spirit reiterates the principles of this lesson's first point. Chapter 2, verse 15 states, "...they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them." Men and women inherently know what the right and wrong things are to do. A good understanding of the flow of this passage and what depravity means is summarized by this thought, "...the mind that finds God worthless becomes worthless itself." That worthless mind is debauched, deceived, and deserving only of God's wrath. Lastly, in regards to evidences of God's abandonment in the life of a person, is this, E, a sanctioning in others, verse 32. Scripture says, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Here is the last of the five characteristics— When God is pulling back His restraint, those who practice the aforementioned degradation approve of others who do likewise, i.e., but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. These five characteristics provide the mature in Christ Christian public servant with enormous insights and discernment in order to wisely identify the presence of forsaking wrath in those around Him. Identifying Wrath number 5, Consequential Wrath Consequential wrath is best understood through the parallel idea we commonly refer to as sowing and reaping. Galatians 6 7 states, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. To illustrate in one of many ways, if a person or a nation sows debt, it will reap in due time the results of financial crisis. Whenever an individual or corporate group of individuals violate, the inviolate precepts of God's Word, he, she, they, or the institution will suffer the respective consequences. Most assuredly, America is facing this form of God's judgment. Let us backtrack now and answer the question whether America is experiencing the forsaking wrath of God. Unlike the ease of answering the question of the existence of consequential wrath, ascertaining the possible existence of forsaking wrath requires a much more complex biblical analysis. What follows are six reasons why I personally do not believe America as a national entity is presently subject to the forsaking wrath of God. Six biblical reasons why America is not experiencing God's forsaking wrath. A. Romans chapter 1 does not address nations. As previously seen, Paul warns of God's judgment in Romans one 18 through 18-32, and he declares that those who persist in sin will be given over to its tyranny, and that God will forsake and remove restraining grace if they fail to repent. But notice that no mention of nations is made in the passage. Some leading evangelicals have suggested that this chapter refers to nations and the judgment they will receive in this age. Such, however, must be read into the passage. Romans 1 addresses the topic of divine abandonment, but says nothing about God's forsaking nations. Paul warned only of the ensuing judgment that individual unbelievers—they themselves are plural pronouns—would incur during their life on earth. Twenty-one plural pronouns are used in these verses, and all of them refer to individuals— Romans 1.18 specifically says that God's wrath is being directed against men. It does not say national entities. Paul speaks of the futile minds and foolish hearts of men in verse 21. Descriptions only applicable contextually to, again, individuals. Chapter 2 continues by addressing individuals as well. Chapter 2, verse 5, 6, and 9. Summarily, it is evident that God does judge unbelievers via the form of forsaking wrath during the Church Age. However, Romans 1 should not be entreated to suggest God judges wayward nations via this form of wrath. This passage provides no biblical support to warrant that position. B. God's priority is to judge the Church, not the State. Peter declares in 1 Peter 4.17 that during the church age, God's judgment is primarily purposed for the maturation of believers. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel first? God's present manifestation of judgment will begin with us first, or before it is dealt to those who do not obey the gospel. Begin, archistai, could be translated as commence, it is chronological in nature though also implying a sense of importance and priority thus Peter is teaching that in this time or age God's judgment will focus upon the household of God i.e. his church God's intentions are to purify his called-out ones and present them to his son before he judges individuals cross reference revelations 20:11 through 15 the great white throne judgment in a future time after the Church Age. Again, no mention is made of God's intention to judge nations. The insight of 1 Peter 4.17 and many other passages indicates God has eternal plans for His Church. The longevity, destiny, and importance of the state wanes in comparison. No passages state that nations are being judged by God during this period of time in which we live. God has judged nations in the past, the Old Covenant, and will do so again in the future, during the future tribulation period spoken of in the book of Revelation. C. The sanctification of His church is His focus. Closely related to the previous point, God is preparing the church to be the bride of Christ for all eternity. The state, however, has little to do with God's eternal kingdom, and will be done away with in the future. Cross-reference Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Importantly, God designed nations and their governments to be instruments of his restraining grace in a fallen world. Cross-reference Genesis 11:6 and 1 Peter 2:14. When Christ returns and reigns, the time will have come when they will no longer be necessary. Properly understood and born from scripture is the understanding that the church is eternal and the state is temporal. Consider Second Corinthians eleven two and notice the emphasis. It reads, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. In this similitude of marriage, Paul desired to see the Corinthian believers grow unto maturity. He longed to see them become a pure bride presentable to Christ. The same desire for the church can be seen in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, only here it is a reference to God's desire for His church. It reads, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Colossians one twenty-eight b provides insight on Paul's reason for teaching and is fitting with the aforementioned passages. It states, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Further, Ephesians 1, 4 explains God's big vision for choosing believers, so they would be holy and blameless before Him. These passages emphasize what God's big purpose is, the sanctification of His church. Again, the reason is to purify a bride for Christ. The book of Revelation foreshadows the day when this purification will be complete. In Revelation 19:7. A multitude of voices erupt with praise, exclaiming, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. These select passages, a few of many, unfold the splendor and majesty of God's overarching focus and purpose during the church age. In contrast, in the New Testament era, the institution of the state is not associated with God's forsaking wrath. Acts 17, verse 26, is one of the few New Testament passages on the subject. It states that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. This passage does not mention forsaking wrath. Nations and governments are temporal entities serving God's eternal purposes, under His sovereign eye and as He deems fit. Often in history, God's purpose for nations has been to judge and thereby mature the church via the conduit of persecution. Thus, if by no other method than the sheer weight of passages in the New Testament, nations are peripheral, and the church is central during the present age. D. Exhaustive New Testament word studies do not support God's judging nations today. Again, God judged nations under the Old Covenant and will do so again at his second coming. But there is no New Testament indication that he judges nations presently during the church age. Further, Old Testament references to future national judgments refer still to the future, not this age, in part because the church was a mystery in the Old Testament, cross-reference Ephesians 3.6. This means future judgments mentioned in the Old Testament could not have applied to the present church age. Illustratively, the Old Testament prophecies of Joel 3:2, along with Zechariah 12:1 through 9 are prophecies about national judgments that will take place during Armageddon. Cross-reference Revelation 16:16, 16, 19:11 16, through 12 and 15 in the future. Revelation 19:15 says that after the second coming, Jesus will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Consider the following exhaustive lexical support from the New Testament. Number one, the Greek word for judge, judge krino, or a derivative is used 182 times in the New Testament. In no instance does this word group refer to judging nations in the church age. Number two, the Greek word for nations, nations, ethnos, is never used in the New Testament, In the context of judgment, with 168 occurrences, this background is particularly interesting and insightful. And number three, the Greek word for repentance, repentance, metanoia, is never used to speak of nations. In other words, no nation during the church age is ever called to repent, whereas individuals are. E. The New Testament does not threaten judgment as a consequence for national sins. If God judges nations during the Church Age, why did the New Testament writers fail to mention it? Specifically and illustratively, would it not have been appropriate for Christ to caution Pilate or Paul to warn Caesar of impending national judgment? If they did warn these political leaders, it is odd that nothing of the sort has been recorded by the Holy Spirit who inspired the writers of Scripture. Further, Paul used very little, if any, ink on the end of his quill to discuss the morality of the Roman Empire. If God judges nations today, surely he would have implored the empire to reverse directions if indeed divine judgment was around the corner. His accounts during his imprisonment in Caesar's household, cross reference Philippians, are void of Caesarean moralisms but rich in terms of evangelization. Cross-reference chapter 4, verse 22. Even when writing to Philemon in the book by that name, a slave owner, Paul never said anything regarding the evils of national slavery. He provides no hints that it would provoke the judgment of God upon Rome. Would not a warning have been in order? The New Testament is devoid of threatening political leaders with the hammer of God's national judgment by Christ or the Apostles. They did not model a ministry of national damnation, nor suggest such for other believers after them. Poignantly, John the Baptist rebuked the person of Herod, not the nation of Rome. Cross-reference Mark six seventeen through 18 This insight should prove sobering, informative, and instructive for Christian public servants. And F. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 relate to the church and not the state. The book of Revelation demonstrates God's concern for the church. Seven churches are mentioned in chapters 2 and 3. To those lacking God's approval, Christ threatened to remove their lampstand unless they repent. Once again, the focus is on purifying the church. Interestingly enough, these chapters are void of mentioning the sins of any particular city or state. If God is set on judging nations during the church age, we would expect warnings to repent, like God's warning to Sodom and Gomorrah. No warning is given to the cities of the seven churches. This additional evidence serves to reveal that God is more concerned about preparing a spotless eternal bride than He is with judging temporal nations. Our conclusion. America is not like Sodom and Gomorrah in the sense that not any faithful were to be found. Cross-reference Genesis eighteen twenty-two through 33 in fact, to the contrary, America today is populated by tens of millions of faithful followers of Christ. Many are those who have glibly postured, if God does not judge America, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. But such thinking fails to consider what went on between Abraham and God in Genesis eighteen, twenty two through thirty-three, before he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. To the contrary, I believe the following is a more biblically accurate summary. Abraham, if he were to plead with God for America, would have had a much stronger case that he did pleading with God for Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, today's America is not by and large characterized by people who are unfaithful to God's precepts. Conversely, only a small minority of individuals are grossly disobedient to God. Individuals to whom the five indicators of Romans 1 apply. Unfortunately for the vast majority of faithful individuals in America, too many of the unfaithful have been allowed by the faithful to gain high positions of influence in our culture, in our government, our educational system, our media, and our entertainment industry. This condition is tragic, unfortunate, and costly. Those individuals who are rebuked by God's forsaking wrath are largely responsible for God's consequential wrath on our nation. Beloved, that condition needs to change and is something we can change with God's help. What is a great encouragement to me, ministering here in our nation's capital, is witnessing the groundswell of faithful individuals who have been voted into office. If my calculations are correct, and I believe they are, more believers are in Congress and the executive branch now than at any other time in modern American history, and they are beginning to reach a tipping point. I think great days lie ahead for our country as more and more evangelicals rise in their influence, you godly public servants who are working so hard to deliver us from the consequential wrath we are undergoing as a nation due in large part to the misdirection of those who are rebuked by God's forsaking wrath. Proverbs 29.2 is an apt summary. It states, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. The study is by no means an exhaustive biblical argument on this subject. To believe that God is judging America via consequential wrath is reasonable, But for the aforesaid reasons, a biblical basis does not exist to conclude that any nation today, including America, is experiencing forsaking wrath. Still, the five identifiers of Romans 1 seem to describe our present culture and some of the individuals therein. This conclusion should greatly encourage those who serve and lead in America. There is hope. It's not as if in your attempts to rebuild America, you are going against the will of God in the sense that you are hanging in and He isn't. Beloved, the ball is still in our court. Let us not lose heart in doing well. State 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. May we work industriously on our own spiritual maturation Convert the laws to presently hold office and continue to elect new, mature believers to sow godly policies that will manifest God's consequential blessing for all the years to come. This concludes our Bible study for this week. May God bless you deeply. Thank you for all you do in our great country and on the Hill. This is Frank Sontag.